All right. Well, welcome, guys. I love, I love the crowd. I love gathering together. Um, so last week, uh, we just went over kind of the introduction of what covenant theology is. We talked about some vocabulary, some major themes, and uh, you know other things that are going to be coming up again and again throughout the study. And tonight, we're actually going to get started in the scriptures. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 2. Um, so if you guys want to turn there. Basically, like I said last week, the structure that we find in scripture and kind of how we're going to go through the class, you have the, the three major kingdoms, uh, the, the major kingdom themes, the dominions that we find throughout scripture, the kingdom of creation, the kingdom of Israel, and then the kingdom of Christ. And with all of those kingdoms, you have various different covenants that we're going to be talking about. Um, so, let me open us up with a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. I'll let you grab your seat and pray. Father, we do thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together, Lord. We do thank you that you've given us your word to study uh, to search the scriptures, to see what lies within them, Lord God, to uh, mine for the great riches that are found in your word, Lord. We thank you for your great providence and sovereignty and that all throughout history you are working out your glorious purposes. And Lord, I just pray that tonight would be a time of uh, just great encouragement from your word, that you would broaden our understanding, that you would enlighten us, Lord God, by your Holy Spirit as we seek to understand and the way that you bring about your redemptive and glorious purposes. And Lord, I do pray that you would please be with me, that I would be able to make clear these things from your word, and that all of us, Lord, would have hearts to receive them, and that we would be able to uh, put them into practice, Lord. And all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, so tonight we're going to be talking really about... Last week, like I said, we introduced the whole theme, the whole subject of covenant theology. Um, and we talked about last week that covenant and kingdom are really tied together in Scripture. The two themes that are very intimately connected, um, the way that God delegates dominion, the way that he establishes authority and kingdom is through covenant. And so tonight we're going to focus in a little bit more on the theme of kingdom and really how we see it in, uh, in a prototypical form in the Garden of Eden. That the Garden of Eden really gives us a lot of imagery and themes uh, that are going to be popping up again and again throughout Scripture. And so let me read um, Genesis chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 20. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from the work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whenever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And we're going to stop our reading there for tonight. Now, again, like I said last week, um, for those of you guys who weren't here, um, with our study, if there's any um, you know, questions or anything that you guys want to clarify on or chime in with, feel free to. You know, We're happy to have conversations here, so... Feel free if you know you're confused or want to add anything uh, to contribute in that way. Um, so, like I mentioned, we're going to be talking really a lot about kingdom, and it's really under, uh, important that we understand God's purpose for creation and for history. And I think that oftentimes, especially as Reformed Christians who love the doctrines of grace and the doctrines of salvation, a lot of like the big themes that we think about in scripture are, you know, for instance, uh, that we're justified by faith alone, that we are made right with God through faith. We think about um, that, you know, God, uh, the way that we are redeemed to God, the way that Jesus paid the price to make us right with God. And a lot of those things, and those are absolutely important. They run throughout scripture. Those are, you know, essential doctrines. But a lot of them deal very much with God and man, right? It's very much like, okay, how we are made right with God, how we relate to God. Again, extremely important and important to emphasize. But I think one of the themes of scripture that is commonly underemphasized is the theme of kingdom. Because ultimately, the reason why God created and the reason why history has unfolded and is unfolding and is ultimately going to end up at a certain point is because God is glorifying himself through establishing his kingdom in which he is going to rule sovereignly and perfectly over all the cosmos without any sin or death or anything like that. And again, all for his glory. And that's a huge theme of scripture. That's really the the story of scripture is the establishment of God's kingdom. And remember, like I said last week, God establishes kingdom through covenant and you know, the word of God, the scripture is the revelation of how God is establishing this kingdom and how he's going to bring it to consummation. And so if we're going to understand this major theme of scripture, this theme of kingdom, then we need to begin by understanding um, the garden of Eden, because it's really here in the garden where God establishes um, patterns and, uh, you know, like I said, symbols, images, themes, all of that is kind of present in the garden in theme in, a, in seed form. And as we continue to go through the scripture and we study the covenants and how God's redemption unfolds, we're going to see these themes come up again and again. Really what we get in the garden is a pattern. God is showing us how he is going to establish this kingdom. Does that make sense so far? Okay, perfect. So the first thing for us to notice when we're studying the garden is that Eden is a very special place. Um, obviously, this is before the fall, and so there's no sin on the earth. There's no uh, corruption in the world. But the whole world was not the Garden of Eden, right? Genesis 2 gives us very specifically, shows that God, after he had created the heavens and the earth and gone through the six days of creation, and after he had formed the man of dust and breathed into him, then it says in uh, verse, verse 8 that the Lord planted the garden in Eden. So it's not as if the whole earth is this paradise garden. It's in a specific place. For a specific purpose, um, it's not, you know, the whole world was not this paradise. Again, there was no sin, there was no death, there was no corruption, but it wasn't this special place that Eden was. Um, 
and we even get that in Genesis 1, after God creates man and he says to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That command to subdue the earth indicates that what God created Adam and Eve for initially was to go forth and to spread this. Hey, what's going on, Flex? God's intention was to um, was for Adam and Eve to subdue the earth, to spread this paradise garden across the whole earth, to bring it to consummation. So, this special place in the garden, it is. Um, it's something like a kingdom. I called it in your outline the kingdom prototype. You know a prototype, like if, I don't know, I was trying to think of a good example, like if a car company is building a new car, first they'll start with building the prototype. And it doesn't exactly run. It's not meant for, um, you know, it's to be driven on the road. It's not meant to be sold. But it sets the model. It gives the parameters and then all the developments that they go through building that actual car are based on the prototype until you finally have the car that you actually put on the lot and you sell and gets driven around. And that's kind of what the garden is. It's like a prototype of the kingdom of God. It's a special dominion where Adam and Eve are given this authority from God to go and to extend the boundaries, extend the borders of this dominion into the rest of the, into the rest of the creation, bring it all into subjection, and then uh, bringing about this final consummated kingdom state. Does that you guys following? Mm-hmm. Okay. So the take a sip. Hey, Kathy, how's it going? Perfect. Sorry if I might be a little bit loud shouting in your ear. I want to make sure everyone hears. Um, so, like I was saying, Eden is kind of this prototype of the kingdom, special dwelling place of God with man, where the image representative of God is ruling on God's behalf. Really, Adam is, in that sense, a perfect son of God. Even in, what is it, in in Luke's gospel, where he goes with the genealogy all the way back to Adam, the son of God. Adam is this perfect son of God, ruling on God's behalf. And if we pay attention to the rest of scripture, if we really look at it closely, then we start to see that all the kingdom realms that are going to follow, the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Christ, they kind of follow this same sort of pattern that we have in the garden. It's a special dominion of God. Um, In a sense, it's sort of recreating the garden, trying to get back to this paradise where God and man dwelled together perfectly uh, and where man ruled perfectly on God's behalf. So important to understand, Eden is a special place, a special dominion. And it's also important to understand that the Garden of Eden is um, is a temple. And when we, mean, when we say, uh, what we mean when I'm saying that the Garden of Eden is a temple, it's a... Like I said, a special dwelling place of God where he is specifically to be worshipped. It's a place where man draws near to God. Um, it's a holy place, right? A temple is a holy place of the Lord where he is to be worshipped, where man can draw near to him. And we have that in Eden. Again, there's intimate fellowship. There's no corruption. And it's not like the rest of the earth. That's kind of what I'm trying to get across, that Eden is not like the rest of creation. God is very specially present there and Adam and Eve have a very specific work to do there to God's glory and part of the other reason why you know uh, many many commentators and why we can say that Eden is kind of the prototype of the temple that we find later on as we go throughout scripture is uh, that section there's that paragraph verses 10 through 14 where I don't know if you're like me, because, you know, we all know this text very well. Genesis 2, you know, we know, don't eat this tree or surely die, the creation of woman. But you have this section, 
in verses 10 through 14 that it's almost very easy just to read past it, talking about rivers, talking about the location, geography, and you're thinking, okay, like, what's the point of this here? Is it just to kind of give us a geographical orientation? Is there something more here? And we sort of read past it and get to the next part where, you know, God talks about the trees uh, of the knowledge of good and evil. But what we have here in that little section are some, is some very specific imagery that relates to temple that we're going to find later on as we go throughout scripture. And like I said, all of this is very much in seed form in the Garden of Eden. All these themes that we're going to talk about tonight, they get developed, they get expanded, they get sharpened, they come into more clear focus as God's redemptive purposes unfold, but they're all here in seed form in the Garden. So even uh, the, the fact of the temple, the Garden was... Uh, on a mountaintop location. And we know that because it said that the rivers flowed out of Eden. They flowed down from Eden. Um, and all throughout scripture, altars, uh, temples, all of those things are built on the hilltops. Remember in, uh, you know, in, in Israel, they were the high places where the people went to sacrifice because they were on the hills, they were on the mountains where people would you know be near to God in that sense. The temple, when it's finally built, is on Mount Zion, right? You have um, just throughout Scripture, Mount Sinai is where God gives His law. Mount Carmel is where Elijah, uh, you know, puts to test the false prophets. You see Jesus pre- preaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is uh, crucified on a hilltop. Uh, you know, Jesus, the Mount of Transfiguration, right? He climbs up with his disciples. All of these holy places, that hilltop, mountaintop location is a theme that comes up throughout scripture that indicates something of being a holy place. Um, there's also the rivers of the garden. It says specifically these four rivers that flow out of the garden and water it. And throughout scripture, rivers and trees are uh, symbols of life and fruitfulness and blessing. And we see those again coming up, especially in Revelation, right? The river of life flows from the throne of God in the final consummated kingdom. So you see that that imagery again. And um, then there's that section about the, the gold and the onyx stone and these precious stones and precious metals. Again, where do we find that in scripture? the tabernacle and the temple, when those are being built, you have these precious stones and gems and metals that are put into it, the bronze and the gold and all the specific instructions because it signifies that glory, that divinity, and again, that holiness of this location, a very special place. Um, And if you guys actually want to flip over to Revelation 21, just so you guys can see from the beginning to the end, this is the the pattern of scripture that we find. Someone coming? This is the pattern that we find of temples, kingdom, a holy place. So Revelation 21, and um, I'll begin reading in verse 19. It says this, the foundation, this is a vision of the, you know, heavenly Jerusalem, the consummated kingdom, right? And it says, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, and each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. 
also on either side of the river the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And so you see there that connection, those things in the garden, the rivers, the gems, the gold, the, uh, in all of that, the tree of life, present at the consummated kingdom. And as we go through this, you're going to see throughout at the tabernacle, when the temple is built, these themes keep popping up again and again. So we can rightly say that the Garden of Eden is a kind of temple. And we also can know that by Adam's specifically priestly function. And these are the other things that we start to see in seed form. And again, this is just an introduction to them. Um, you know, we're gonna, they're all going to develop more as we go throughout scripture. But Adam was a priest in the Garden of Eden. And there are several things in there that reveal that to us. Like I said, priest, that's a theme that's going to flow throughout. Um, he begins to set the pattern of what a priest of God is and what his responsibilities are. Um, Adam, when he was created in the image of God, he wasn't placed in the garden just to bask in God's presence and in his glory. But Adam was given very specific tasks to do and very important tasks. And you have in uh, chapter 2, verse 15 in Genesis... The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So we have right away, Adam is put in the garden uh, with responsibilities. He has a mission. He has something to accomplish. Um, sorry, one second. When we, when we look at those that command to work it and to keep it, again, I think our mind tends to go to, well, he's a gardener, right? He's going to go, he's to, you know, tend to all the plants, make sure they bear fruit, do all those things. And that's absolutely right. Adam was to bring all of creation to its full potential by working. Work is a good thing. Um, but also, part of Adam's responsibility, the very priestly responsibility that he had was to keep the garden and that word keep elsewhere throughout the new the new uh, sorry the old testament is translated to guard and even if you look over at genesis chapter 3 after the fall into sin after adam and eve were kicked out of the garden uh genesis 3 24 says that god drove out the man and uh at the east of the garden God placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And that word guard is the exact same word in Hebrew that the word keep is in Genesis 2. And so the angel there, you have this picture of, you know, as part of God's judgment, Adam and Eve are kicked out of his presence. And this angel here is to guard the tree of life. And that really is the foundational element of priestly responsibility. Now, after the fall and later on when we get to Moses and Aaron and the Levitical priesthood, you have all the elements of sacrifice and atonement that are added in. But fundamentally, the role of the priest is to basically deal with the fact that God is holy. That's pretty much what the priesthood is all about, that God is absolutely holy, that nothing profane, nothing common, nothing uh, sinful can come into his presence. And so the priesthood is to guard the holiness of God. If you guys turn over to Numbers chapter 3, we see this when uh, Moses is explaining to the tribe of Levi the, the nature and the responsibilities of the priesthood, that it really is... Um, all about, like I said, dealing with the fact that God is holy and making it so that nothing unholy, nothing common, nothing profane can come into the presence of God. Um, and so Numbers chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 8, Moses says of the Levites who were the priests, that they shall, or they were you know, served in the priesthood, 
They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister in the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his son. They are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. And if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. And so that word guard in those verses comes up three times. That's the same word that is used to describe Adam's responsibility in the Garden of Eden, that he was to protect the holiness of God. And again, you see it in the priesthood when it emerges under the law of Moses, that in... um, this is part of why the Day of Atonement was such a frightening thing, because that's when the high priest went behind the curtain to the Holy of Holies, and there was the real fear that he might not come out alive because he was entering into the holy presence of God. Even the whole sacrificial system, the whole idea of making atonement, of uh, you know, the, the substitutionary sacrifices, what was the point of that? It was because the people were sinful and they had to be made holy. They had to be sanctified to come into the presence of God. So even the the whole sacrificial system that develops out of the priesthood is all based on this idea of dealing with God's holiness. How does the profane, how does something common, how could it ever enter into the presence of God? Keeping it out, that's why we need sacrifices. Does that make sense? Do you guys have any thoughts or questions? What's that? I was going to say, is every, ever since you've been um, speaking, it just reminds me of Hebrews 9, because I was going through Hebrews Domini, and I think in Hebrews 9 it was talking about the holy. Mm-hmm. Um, the priesthood, it talks about the priesthood pretty much because Christ is that sacrifice. I mean, it's probably off topic now, but um, Christ is the high priest who goes into the into the temple, and he is the temple. He exactly. His own blood You're getting ahead of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, doesn't the same kind of concept even uh, pertain today with, with the ministers who protect, right. who keep it holy. That's part of our, as, as elders, pastors, and elders, too. Exactly. That's why, Shepherd. you know, not just anyone can come and eat at the Lord's table, right? That's a holy sacrament of the Lord, and there's... You know, baptism, we're going to talk about as we get along later in, in the class. Church discipline. That's exactly. Why it's a mark of the church. Preserving that holiness. That's absolutely right. Um, yeah, you have that priestly function. And so back to the garden with Adam, where we have this in its prototypical seed form. Um, now we know this is before the fall. And so there was nothing evil on the earth, there was no sin in the world. However, the fall in heaven, the you know the fall of the angels had already happened. Satan had already fallen. There were there, so there was wickedness. There was evil in the cosmos, but not on the earth, right? Um, and so, first of all, not everything was consecrated as holy. This is part of Adam's responsibility to subdue, is to extend the holiness of the garden over the earth. So there was that active role, and that's part of when it says to work and to keep. Part of uh, what he's talking about to work is uh, Adam extending the holiness of the garden over all of creation. Then to keep is to make sure that nothing profane enters the holy garden, the temple of the Lord. Um, And so, again, Adam was both to extend the temple and to protect the temple. And of course, we know that Adam failed in this priestly work, specifically in that he allowed Satan, the serpent, uh, to enter into the holy garden of God. He allowed the profane creature to come into God's temple, and he did not cast him out. He did not, uh, you know, he didn't exercise his authority as a priest that God had given him. He did not guard the holiness of God. And so we see Adam failing in his priestly duties by allowing the serpent in and not casting him out, yeah. allowing that profaneness. What's up? It was like a lot of misconceptions. I mean, where was Adam when Satan was tempting Eve? People think, oh, Adam was out doing the garden. He was out there as far away. Oh, he was right there beside That's right. He was failing at his, at his duty. Mm-hmm. Um, So that's the first thing, the first big theme, the priesthood. The second one, the second role that Adam was called to perform that we find that continues through scripture is that Adam was a prophet. 
Um, now, the primary duty of a prophet, it's not to make predictions or tell the future. Fundamentally, the duty of a prophet is to relay the full word of God accurately and precisely. A prophet proclaims the truth of God. Um, <clears throat> A prophet is somebody who is entrusted with God's word and is called to make that word known. And so Adam is placed in the garden, uh, perfect creation, perfect general revelation, right? There was no sin in the world, and so everything functioned the way that it was supposed to function. He could learn from the garden certain things about God. The heavens declared the glory of God, all of that. And Adam, as unfallen, unsinful, had a perfect conscience. His conscience was not seared. His The law of God was written perfectly on his heart uh, and you know, would testify perfectly to him. And so there was much that Adam could learn from general revelation. You know, God's glory shined through, but God gave Adam special revelation in the garden. We're going to talk a little bit more about this next week, um, the difference kind of between the moral creation law and then the specific covenant law. But God gives Adam a specific command that he could not have gleaned from nature itself. When God commanded the man in verse 16, saying, you may surely eat of any tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so with that word, with that specific command, Adam couldn't have perceived by nature that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was off limits. God had to tell him that specifically. He gave him that command, that special revelation, and he gave him the command before Eve was created, right? It was just God and Adam. He gave him the command. And as soon as Eve was created, Adam had a responsibility to make the special revelation of God known to his wife, Eve. He was entrusted with this command of God. And as soon as Eve came into existence, Adam was responsible to proclaim the word of God to her. And in that, he was exercising the office of a prophet. He was to do this fully and accurately. And again, like I said with the priesthood, like with all of these things, the prophetic office is going to develop, especially when we get to Moses. We see really God's model for the prophets. But with Adam, we have it in seed form. He's given a special revelation of God, and he is called to proclaim accurately and completely that revelation from God. And there's also another element to Adam's prophetic work in the garden that is easy, again, for us to overlook. We know that God gave Adam the job of naming all the animals. And you know, you guys are probably familiar and know kind of the biblical perspective on naming and what that means. It's not just like how we name our kids, you know, it sounds nice or something like that. Um, but to name something in scripture is to um it's it's descriptive. It is uh, to denote role or function or usefulness. What's the purpose for which this was made? And so, you know, when God changes someone's name, like the name Abraham means father of a multitude, right? We see throughout scripture, God changes people's names, very specific, it describes role or function. And so Adam's job in the garden with naming the animals, it's not like Adam just went around and saw the cute little animals and just kind of chose a name that was fun or sounded nice. But really what his job was, uh, was to discover and to describe the richness and the proper use of God's creation. He was to examine the animals, to see what they did, what they could be used for, what their function was, and then to accurately describe that by naming them. And in that, there was a, there was a prophetic element to that. Adam is examining God's creation, God's general revelation, and proclaiming the truth about it in naming the animals. And just as a side note, I don't want to get deeply into this discussion tonight or anything, but even what we have going on right now with all the transgenderism, it ties directly back into this when language is intentionally being used not to proclaim the truth about God's creation and the roles and functions and usefulness of what God has made, 
but it's instead being used to distort and twist and destroy uh, the the proper use of God's creation. We as Christians have the prophetic duty to proclaim God's word that he has made known through creation, right? To proclaim the truth of God that he's revealed in what he has made. And so even that ties into this. But I hope you see that even Adam naming the animals, there's a prophetic role that he has to play in that. Proclaiming the truth of God. And again, just like with the priesthood, Adam failed as a prophet. Now, if you go down to Genesis 3, you see the serpent come and tempt Eve. And the serpent says to the woman, this is in the second half of Genesis 3, verse 1. Serpent said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For when, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so we see the temptation of the serpent going after God's word, twisting God's word, lying and bearing false witness about God's word. And we also see Eve. And, you know, you guys, you know, we've pointed this out before. Eve, with that subtle uh, change in the command of God, where she adds to his command about the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, we don't know. It's possible that Eve was misquoting or misrepresenting God, but it's also possible that Adam, even in communicating to Eve, failed in that way in his prophetic responsibility by not communicating the truth accurately to her. In any case, regardless of that, it was absolutely Adam's role to rebuke the serpent when he overtly twisted the word of God and then not only twisted it, but turned it on its head by saying, no, you're not going to die, but when you eat of this, you are going to be like God, knowing good and evil. Adam had the word of God, and as a prophet, his responsibility was to bear witness to the truth that God had entrusted to him to rebuke the heresy of the serpent and, um, and to you know, do so on the authority of God's word. And when he failed to do that, when he refused to do that, he failed in his office as a prophet. Um, you guys have any questions about that? Go ahead. It would have to be the most gorgeous fruit in the world. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Garden of Eden, and you know, we're color, we love color. <laughs> All about that delight to the eye. It was a delight to the eye. Hey, uh, and also, like, just, this, just like the priestly function, mm-hmm. the prophet, the prophetic function role goes even to this day mm-hmm. out of your. But just that idea, like to everything you're saying here, this applies to all of us as Christians generally, yes. specifically to the pastors and the leadership. We are to present that truth. We are to, um, as that prophetic voice, bring forth the word and will of God for our, for our salvation. Mm-hmm. So there's that continues to go all the way through even to this day. Right. These are those themes that just you know they they keep on. Yeah. Um, and, and also you'll notice, too, with these offices, prophet and priest, there's so much overlap. And like I said, as you go throughout, you know, like, okay, Adam should have, as a priest, kept the profane serpent from the garden. As a prophet, he should have corrected the errors and heresies. Um, yeah. Silence your phones. Um, but there is... Um, there's a lot of overlap in these offices. And as we go through scripture, you're going to see more distinction, right? The priesthood becomes distinct. The prophetic office becomes distinct. But then later on, when we come to Christ, once again, they all overlap and culminate in, in one. But we'll get there. Um, the third one that we want to talk about, Adam also was a king. So Adam was a priest, a prophet, and a king. We know God's command to his image bearers to fill the earth, to subdue it, and to have dominion over it. And Adam, as the husband, the head of his wife, he was the head, the king over 
this project on the earth to go and to establish God's dominion. And we mentioned at the beginning that their role was to extend the boundaries, extend the borders of this holy kingdom temple of God to all of uh, creation, to all the ends of the earth. With his wife as his helper, they were to extend that realm of Eden to fill all of creation, to fill it with worshipers of God, and to establish um, full dominion as God's representatives. That was Adam's kingly function, to extend this dominion perfectly and to bring the kingdom of creation to its consummation. Um, Like I said at the very beginning, that's the major story of the Bible. That's what God, that's why God created and why history is unfolding. God is establishing a consummated kingdom where he rules perfectly over everything. And that was Adam's role as a king was to, was to do that, was to have that dominion. And this is also where, and I hope this helps us even as we think about the Sabbath, because that's another theme here in the garden, majorly running throughout scripture. So what you have, Adam as a king, Adam and Eve having dominion, they are to imitate God in his work, right? Adam and Eve are to fill the earth, they are to have a creative role, and they are to subdue it, have a sustaining role, just like God has. They are to imitate their creator. And when that work was completed, when you know Adam and Eve, they were to go, have dominion over the whole earth, at that time, then they would also imitate their creator in his rest. Because when God was done working, he rested on the Sabbath day. And throughout scripture, and especially in Hebrews, explicitly when we get to the New Testament, the consummated kingdom is described as the eternal Sabbath, right? That is the eternal rest of God's people. And so Adam as king was to bring the kingdom to its consummation and bring about this eternal Sabbath. And you even have this also, before we get to the New Testament in Christ, uh, you have this theme and this idea of the Sabbath rest of God's people majorly running throughout the Old Testament. If you guys would turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 22, because also I want you guys to see that the Sabbath rest uh, of the consummated kingdom is tied very explicitly to the the office of the king. Uh, I know that it's, you know, for all of us as believers, but the office of the king is very specifically tied to um, this bringing about the eternal Sabbath. And again, when we get to David, the kingship is going to come into very sharp focus. That's where God really develops more of these themes. But if you look at 1 Chronicles 22, this is when David is requesting to God that, you know, he's wanting to build the temple of God, right? Build that place of worship for God where they would go and worship and have that fellowship with God as that Sabbath rest. And this is what God says to to David. 1 Chronicles 22, verse 9, God says, Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. So you see there that theme of rest, that Sabbath rest tied to the kingship. So God says to David, with your son Solomon, I'm going to give you peace from your enemies. I'm going to give you rest. And then my temple will be built and my people will come and worship me in peace. So you have that picture of rest that comes about when the king has fulfilled his responsibilities. And then if you guys turn back to um, uh, First Kings, uh, you know, handful of pages back. First Kings chapter 5, you actually have Solomon um, getting ready to build this temple. And First Kings 5 verse 4, Solomon says, Now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is no adversary nor misfortune. And so this theme, this idea of rest is tied to the kingship. Um, that, you know, that, that faithful rule and leadership of the people uh, consummated in Sabbath rest. And part of that, so the, the primary, one of the primary roles of the king, the office of the king, is to defend, right? 
um, is to protect God's people from his enemies. And this is the way, again, throughout scripture that that Sabbath rest is brought about. Do you remember Joshua? In him, we kind of also have a type of Christ and a type of king where Joshua led the people in the conquest of the promised land. And then what happened after Joshua fulfilled his duties as that type of king, they were brought into the land, into the rest, into that Sabbath. You have that imagery there and that kind of language there. Again, David, he fought, defeated the enemies. Then when Solomon's reign came around, there was peace and there was rest. And so the way to the consummated Sabbath rest is for the king to faithfully defend his people from the enemy and conquer the adversary by God's authority, proclaiming the word of God. And again, these offices tied together, the priest, the prophet, the king, it all sort of goes together. And you see the pattern throughout scripture. And once again, just like with the other offices, Adam failed in this. Adam was responsible as a king to protect God's dominion, to protect those under his authority from the enemy. And so when Satan came and attacked, when he tempted the woman, um, it was Adam's duty to protect her and to protect the the dominion, the realm that he was lord over. Uh, it was his responsibility to defend and to conquer Satan on God's behalf. Adam was to stand in the gap. He was to confront the enemy. Um, but instead, again, Adam abdicated his authority. He didn't confront Satan. And that led to sin in the fall. And so I want, what I want us to see with these institutions and kind of these symbols, imagery, are the patterns that are going to run throughout Scripture. They're going to be expanded throughout Scripture. They're going to come into sharper focus and kind of build the expectation. But what these do is they, they really teach us, like I said last week, God's plan is so glorious, so magnificent, so incomprehensible that if he were to come out and tell us plainly exactly what he's doing, we would not be able to understand it. And so God uses pictures. He uses symbols, images, themes, these sorts of things. So we can kind of wrap our mind around what God is doing. And those are the, all those images the, the, the major themes in scripture are rooted here in the garden. And so when we start to see, okay, what was God doing in the garden? What was Adam called to? That kind of gives us parameters to think about the other major portions of scripture. What's Israel called to do? What's David called to do? What's Moses called to do? What's Christ's mission in the world? What's our mission in the world? It goes back to the garden in this pattern of God establishing dominion, expanding his kingdom, and ultimately, we'll wrap up with this tonight, that Christ fulfills all three of these offices and all of it. You know, you have on your outline, I think, that list of kind of the ways that you have these themes in the garden that Christ fulfills. But just to go through quickly the offices, Christ is the perfect priest. Again, it's not until later that the theme of atonement and sacrifice begins to develop more more completely. But even with that very basic responsibility of the priest to guard the holy, um, we have in Christ, he was the incarnation of the holy. Christ was perfectly unclean and Christ kept himself from sin completely. Even though he was tempted in every way, he never sinned. You have Jesus, he went into the temple and what did he do? He cleansed the temple. He drove out the uncleanness of the merchants and the money changers. Um, you know, even the, his role as priest extended beyond just keeping his own self clean. But what did Jesus do? He touched the unclean lepers and he made them clean. The woman with the discharge of blood and he made her clean. Uh, you know, ultimately us as unclean sinners, Christ touches us and makes us clean and allows us to come into the holy presence of God. So you have in that Christ fulfilling the office of the priest by guarding and preserving that which is holy, not letting anything profane enter into the holy place. Um, we also have Christ as the perfect prophet. He's the incarnate word of God. He 
um, proclaims the word of God fully and perfectly, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus extend, or not extends, but explains the law of God in its fullness, what the spirit of the law actually is, what the law teaches. Uh, you know, he rebuked the Pharisees of his day who were replacing the word of God with their tradition, who are mixing tradition with the word of God. And, um, and in Christ, you have... If ultimately the role of the prophet is to make the word of the truth of God fully known, Christ is the truth, right? Christ is the perfect uh, disclosure of God. He is the, uh, the the radiance of the glory of God. He is the image of the invisible God, right? That's Christ is the perfect revelation of God, the perfect prophet. Do you have something yeah, to add? The prophet, like Troy Catherine says, that's how he is. He's our prophet. He shows us, um, he has to keep the office of prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. Yep. Brings that out in all its fullness in Christ. Exactly, exactly. Um, and even Christ, you remember uh, what Jesus said to Peter when Peter, you know, his heresy, when Peter said, No, Lord, you are not going to go to the cross, you're not going to do this. Peter said, Get behind me, Satan. That sharp rebuke, that's exactly what Adam should have said in the garden mm-hmm. and said, You have Christ who is perfectly. Um, fulfilling the role of the prophet, protecting the truth and the sanctity of um, of, of God's word. Um, and then Christ also is the perfect king. He fulfills the kingship. Um, Christ really enters into his glory and authority at the resurrection when he, as king, defeats the great enemy, which is death. When Christ emerges from the grave, he defeats the enemy. He defends his people from death, right? Those who are in Christ, the second death does not touch us. It cannot hurt us. Um, You know, Christ defends us, defeats all of his enemies. And Christ establishes his dominion. All authority belongs to him. He is extending his kingdom to the ends of the earth, and he's doing so through the authority of, you know, by the means of his people, with the uh, power of his Holy Spirit, Christ is establishing his dominion and his authority, and ultimately he is going to bring the kingdom to its full consummation and bring all of his people into their final Sabbath rest. And so in all the areas where Adam failed, Christ fulfills. Now, obviously, all of that comes way later. I just want to kind of give you guys a taste of where this is all going. But there's a lot that happens in between the garden and when Christ comes. But I want you guys to see that the themes that we have in the garden at the very beginning, they run throughout Scripture. They're fulfilled in Christ. And so as we work through uh, covenant theology, as we go through Scripture, you're going to see this prototypical kingdom of Eden kind of recapitulated and sort of recreated again and again until finally... Christ comes and all these offices, the prophets, the priests, the kings, they're going to get sharper. You're going to start to see more clearly, okay, this is what God is doing, kind of building off of what he began to do in the Garden of Eden. This is what he's doing, okay. We're, this is how the unclean sinners come into the holy presence of God. This is how the word of God is perfectly known. You know, even in Jeremiah, when we get to talk about the new covenant, I will write my word on their hearts. They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. This is how uh, God's dominion is being established. Uh, do you guys have anything else or questions? We're going to add our before we sacrifice. Right now, he's talking about the cleansing of the that priestly function, he offers himself a one-time sacrifice. Exactly. So that's going to build on and fill it in. Mm-hmm. The kingship of Christ, the catechism says, he subdues us to himself. He yes. conquers us with his love. Yep. He rules and defends us, defeats all of his and our enemies. Mm-hmm. He gives us that rest. Like, it's like a revelation. Mm-hmm. No more tears, no more sorrow. It's, it gives me like chills. Just it is. I, it's beautiful. Yeah, that, that's Pastor, Pastor Joe, I, I mean, I'm just, Was um, uh, wasn't even a run. Oh no, he was. He was right behind. And, mm-hmm. and then it stops. That, that's all the people that I've heard all my life. 
And that's the thing is that throughout this class, we're going to be looking at a lot of like sections that are very familiar to us. I mean, we know we so many of us, we kind of know these first three chapters from Genesis almost by heart. But there's so much more there than what we commonly find. And that's what I said last week is that my hope with this class, you know, again, covenant theology, sometimes it can get a little technical like last week and get a little bit, you know, dense and kind of hard to wrap your mind around. But ultimately, I hope that, and what I've found studying all this, is that it should lead us to greater devotion to God because you really start to see the depths of the riches of God's glory and how he's working and all the, I mean, when you talk about mining for the wealth that's in scripture, you know, this is this is what we're talking about. And so, you know, I, that's my hope is for that kind of response. It's just because of greater assurance, too, because mm-hmm. of the consistency, the continuity, you see the unfolding of redemptive history, how it all ties together over all that period of time, through the different, how God's providence is working in and through that to bring it forward, to preserve it. Mm-hmm. So that helps and that's, with our assurance, too. And, and that's how we opened last week, right? That passed from Hebrews yeah. 10, the full assurance of faith built on the reality of the covenant. And so if we understand the covenant and the you know God's promises of his kingdom and what he's doing, that's going to really help to firm up our faith, especially, you know, in times and seasons where it's easy to doubt, you know, is God building his kingdom? Is God establishing his rule? You know, is all of that. It's very easy for us to doubt, but we need that. We need this for the assurance of our faith. And it really helps us appreciate Christ as Jack was saying about Adam. And, you know, we just have that limited idea of knowledge. But that, it just puts the emphasis and spotlight on Christ being the second Adam. You know, that where Adam failed, Christ succeeds. Mm-hmm. Well, I've heard of Christ being the second Adam, but I've never heard all this, like how oh, Jack was saying about these things. I missed the first part. Did Are you saying that God made a covenant with Adam? Yes, but that's, we actually did not talk about that in this class. That's next week we're going to talk about actually the covenant that God made, you know, what are the terms, what it does, all of that. Tonight we were, I mean, I think you probably caught most of the gist of it. We are just talking about these big themes of Scripture that we find in the garden and the, the way they kind of play out throughout Scripture. But yeah, next week we're going to talk about, actually we're going to still be in Genesis, the very beginning talking about the covenant that God made with Adam and what that means and what it does. That'll be next week. Yeah. And that will help explain all this, these things that you say Adam was. Right, yeah. Well, again, you see it, again, it, it is very much in seed form, these roles that Adam had to fulfill. All of them, he was covenantally obligated to fulfill. But again, just those little things like that, he was given the special word from God and to make it known that he was to guard the, the garden to keep it holy all of those things are um you know that that shows us that adam had these roles to fulfill and then he fails but christ succeeds in them so uh, uh, um, when he was guarding then the serpent came in then well it's all i was trying to figure out how the serpent now I think that the, all the creatures in and of themselves were good. The serpent was, you know, I guess you could say kind of possessed by Satan. And so when he entered in and when he was tempting Eve, Adam, you know, as the priest who was supposed to be guarding this holy place of God should have driven him out, you know, as it was Satan, not, you know, not just any other animal. This was Satan in the garden. Uh, you know, undermining the word of God. And so that's, again, it's not as if there's, um, you know, some hidden message underneath where all of this is, you know, made very explicit. But I guess a better way to say it, like I've been saying before, it's all in very seed form. It's very rudimentary, right? It's, It's really basic. You see the basics of these functions that get all expanded on later in scripture, but the basics are all here in Adam, especially because it is explicitly said that Christ is the second Adam. So Christ was uh, raised up to do what Adam failed to do. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. All right. Perfect. I look at it backwards. <laughs> right. Exactly. And that's and that's our that's the benefit of the time that we live in. We can look at it backwards. And like I said last week, when we were talking about the mystery of Christ, 
throughout the Old Testament, Christ is revealed as a mystery. So you're looking at these things. Imagine being a person, you know, living before the time of Christ, trying to, you know, figure out, okay, what's God doing? It's a mystery, and it's not easy to understand. But once you have Christ, then you can look back, and everything kind of falls into place, and you can see, okay, this is what God has been doing, and this is how God was proclaiming Christ. And, uh, you know, that'll become more clear next week. We'll talk a little bit about... Genesis 3:15, where God does make the promise of bringing the seed of the woman into the world, and that's really when Christ begins to be revealed piece by piece as a mystery. Starting there, were there any other questions? I do. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes, I can recommend you the book that I'm really heavily using. Um, all right, let's pray. I'll give you that. Father, we do thank you so much for your word. Um, it is just so glorious, Lord, and it's hard for us to even appreciate the depths of wisdom found in your word and the, the great revelation that you've made of yourself and of what you're doing. And Lord, we thank you for your great providence and your sovereign purposes to establish your kingdom. And Lord, we thank you that you have given us, um, you've raised up great teachers to uh, expound upon your word, to interpret and to understand your word. And I just pray that you would continue to illuminate us. Lord, let us never become complacent in thinking that we've learned everything that we can from scripture and we're just rereading for the sake of it. But Lord, let us every time we go back to these familiar portions of scripture, seek to dive even more deeply, Lord, for we know that every word is breathed out by your spirit. And so every word is valuable for us. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would help us to be committed to to working hard to understand your word and to apply it to our lives, to understand it more deeply and to walk more faithfully. And so, Lord, I do pray that we would just be glorifying you and all that we do and all of our work and all of our study. And it's all in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.